People can't tell us everything's going to be okay, you should just be happy, you should just feel better. And one of the reasons they can't is because we know that they don't know that everything's going to be okay because they're just people, right? But it's so different when the Lord stands beside us and says to be of good cheer because he is the solution to our problems. When Jesus says, take courage, be of good cheer, it's because he's going to provide us the courage. Life can be really crazy sometimes, and often we get worried or even afraid of what's coming next. Well, as we see a group of people planning to kill Paul, we'll learn a lot from what he does. Here's Pastor David. Uh, Last week we talked about Paul before the Sanhedrin, this group of the leaders, the council, uh, the leaders of the Jewish people, the religious leaders. He was before them, um, and they're very upset with him. Because Paul preaches about Jesus, and they don't like that, okay? That kind of threatens their uh, assumptions, challenges their assumptions, challenges their traditions, their institutions, and the way that they've come to think about what it means to be Jewish and to serve God and all this stuff. So they're upset. And Paul's been arrested by the Romans because when he was in the temple, uh, some of the Jews got really upset with him. They grabbed him. They dragged him outside the temple. They start beating him. Okay, and so the Romans come, and the and the commander of the garrison uh, gets Paul and arrests him, uh, pulls him so that they don't kill him, basically, and brings him back and arrests him. And, and and Paul's under arrest, but he doesn't. The Roman commander of the garrison does not know why they're mad at Paul, and so that's why he brings him in front of the Sanhedrin, and, and uh, so that he could hear kind of the charges that they had against him. Okay, and so uh, when Paul speaks before the Sanhedrin. He mentions that he's a Pharisee and that he has hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he says this, it basically causes a big tumult uh, between the different kind of parties within the, within the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they start fighting with each other, and, and they fight so much that the commander of the garrison has to send soldiers in to pull Paul out. Of between, from between them because they're going to tear him to pieces because they're basically fighting over him and what he said. He's basically caused this issue. And so they bring Paul back into the barracks, and that's where we left him last time, okay? Uh, as we walk through today's scripture, we're going to finish out, we're going to try to finish out, Lord willing, chapter 23 today. As we walk through the scripture today, I want you to be thinking about a few things. First, when Jesus tells us he's going to do something, he's going to do it. We can believe that. We can have 100% confidence in the promises of God. But what is our part in that? When Jesus tells us he's going to do something, do we just sit back and wait for it to happen? Or do we continue to wisely do our part to pursue those promises that God's given us? I just want you to think about that as we walk through. The other thing I want you to think about is we're going to run into some some fellows here uh, in this passage that are so angry that they want to murder Paul. They want to kill him because he's threatening their traditions, their institutions, and, and essentially their pride. Okay, so we're going to see these guys, and, and I want us to think about how do we think about those who threaten our traditions and institutions and pride? Do we have the mind of Christ toward all people, or do we see some people as other or as those people? And if so, you know, uh, what ought we to be doing? So I want you to think through those things as we read through this passage, and we'll kind of come back to them in a little while. So we're in chapter 23. If you have your Bible turned there, we're at verse 11. And it says this, but the following night, so remember, he's been taken back in the barracks, right? He was in front of the Sanhedrin. He's been taken back in the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, the Lord stood by Paul, and said, be of good cheer, Paul, 
For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, the Lord stood by him. What an amazing picture this is because Paul's having a rough time, to be fair, okay? Uh, it's not his first rough time, but it's a rough time, okay? He got a beat down. He's under arrest. First, the, the Jews basically are trying to beat him to death. Then he's under arrest by the Romans. Uh, he hasn't been able to do much in the way of uh, preaching the gospel and convincing anybody while he's been in Jerusalem that we've seen. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. I would say Paul's pretty stressed out. That's what I would say. Uh, and in this moment where Paul is probably not feeling very good at all, okay? He's probably feeling very, very down, very, very stressed, doesn't know what's going to happen next. In this moment, the Lord stood beside him, stood beside him. Do you ever feel alone, broken, or afraid? If you're living in this world, the answer is yes, you do sometimes feel that way. Uh, in those moments, what would it do for you to know that the Lord was standing beside you? that the Lord stood beside you. I think that for me, in those moments when I, when I recognize that the Lord's presence is there, that his presence is so amazing and powerful that it's beyond what I could explain with words. The comfort, the peace that comes in knowing that the Lord is there in our most difficult times, that yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that he's with us, that his rod, his staff, they comfort us. To know that is incredibly comforting. And what does the Lord tell Paul here in this, in this passage? He says, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Now, in Greek, uh, this could be kind of be of good courage, be of good cheer. It's a comforting thing. It's essentially a command to be, to be brave, to be courageous, to, be, to feel good. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing. Um, it's a command to be of good courage, to be of good cheer. Now, in the New Testament, this is used several times, and in every instance except one, it's spoken by Jesus, including here. The, the, other, the other instance was a blind man who Jesus called, and the people said to the blind man, be of good cheer, he's called for you. So in every case, this phrase, this Greek phrase, is attributed to Jesus himself or about Jesus. And here's the thing, because he's the only one who could ever say it? He's the only one who could ever say it. We've all probably been in those situations where, we have, where we're anxious, we're depressed, we're lonely, we're whatever, we're having a hard time. And some well-meaning person, or maybe not so well-meaning, comes up to us and says something like, buck up, get tough, feel better, right? And, and you're kind of like, oh, is that, all, is that all it was? If I would have known that, right, you should be a you know, motivational speaker. If I had just known all I had to do was feel better and I wouldn't feel so bad, it's kind of a dumb thing to say, right? Because if we could just buck up or feel better, we would. The reason we feel like that is because we can't just get tough or buck up or feel better. There are some things that are difficult in life, okay? Um, and it's, so it's very rarely effective when somebody says something like that to us. But there is a person who can say that to us. Because here's the deal. People can't tell us everything's going to be okay. You should just be happy. You should just feel better. And one of the reasons they can't is because we know that they don't know that everything's going to be okay because they're just people, right? But it's so different when the Lord stands beside us and says to be of good cheer because he is the solution to our problems. When Jesus says, take courage, be of good cheer, it's because he's going to provide us the courage, He's going to work it out for good for the kingdom of God. 
He's in control. So when he says be of good cheer, he commands us to be of good cheer. You can actually be of good cheer because you know that he's in control. He knows the end from the beginning. And he's telling us that being of good cheer, being of good courage, bucking up, feeling better, is the proper response to the fact that he's standing beside us. And it is, right? And here's the thing. It's not just for Paul in this moment where Jesus says, be of good cheer. We actually have Christ saying, be of good cheer to every one of us. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John 16, verse 33. It says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's to you and me. That's to all of his disciples, right? You're going to have trouble. Do you understand what's going on here? You're going to have trouble, tribulation, difficulties. All of those things are going to happen. All those things are going to happen. But Jesus has overcome the world. And because of that, he's commanding us to be of good cheer. To be of good cheer. I, can't, I can only imagine the comfort that this statement of Jesus has brought Christ followers over many, many centuries. And, and to this day, all over the world, when they're going through difficulties and they look to this statement, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. It reminds me of Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We can be of good cheer. We can be of good courage because God's got this. God's got this, okay? Not that you won't suffer, suffer trouble in the world, okay? But that all things will work together for good because Jesus has overcome the world, and so Jesus tells Paul that Paul will testify of Jesus in Rome. Now Paul can rest in that and have courage in that and be of good cheer. And that's a good thing because the next thing that happens here in the passage is pretty rough for Paul. So let's look at verses 12 uh, through 16. It says, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. All right, you can see why it's good that the Lord had come and stood by Paul and told him to be of good cheer and gave him this promise about making it to Rome because when you find out that 40-plus dudes want to off you, it's kind of a bummer, right? I mean, it's kind of a bummer to find out that all these guys have, have determined to kill you. They're not going to eat or drink until they've killed you. They're, they're pretty serious about it. But now, of course, Paul knows that that's not going to happen because the Lord has promised him he would get to Rome. But these guys are zealous, right? They want Paul dead. They want Paul dead. They apparently are willing to attack whatever Romans would have been guarding him to bring him to the Sanhedrin uh, in order to get at him, which is a very serious thing, okay? Uh, this would put their own lives in very, very serious danger, and it was that serious to them. What could these men be so angry about with Paul that they would even then go get the chief priests and the, and the council involved. I mean, do you understand the political issue here by bringing these chief priests and the council into this thing? 
If they had gone and brought Paul, and these guys would have come down and killed Paul, maybe hurt, hurt or killed some of those soldiers, not only would the 40-plus guys be in big, big trouble and probably be executed, but the, enti- the leadership of the Jews would have been in, implied that they were involved in this conspiracy. It would have, I don't know what it would have done. It could have undone all of Jerusalem at the time. It was that big of a deal. They were that upset about wanting to kill Paul. The risk would have been enormous, enormous. And why? So they can kill this Christian preacher. What causes that kind of anger? We'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Let's look at verses uh, 17 through 22. It says, Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander yet let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So, so one thing I can see is that Paul's obviously been treated somewhat well. He can take in visitors. Right, and even tell his visitors to go talk to the commander and all that worked out. So he's been treated somewhat well. You remember last time he told him he was a Roman citizen and they sort of backed off. So apparently he's doing okay in there. Um, and his nephew is here in Jerusalem. He hears about this plot. This is His nephew hearing about this plot, this young man hearing about this plot, is just another one of these examples. We've talked about this before. There are people who say that there's a conspiracy, that basically all of, all of the Scripture, all of the Bible, all the people, all the hundreds of people who said that they saw Jesus alive after he was dead, that it's a big conspiracy to create this religion. Now, first of all, why they would create a conspiracy that most of them or many of them had to be martyred for, I'm not really sure. But putting that aside, you had 40-plus guys, right? And then they go talk to the Sanhedrin, which could have been up to 70 or more people that they talked to. And they, they had a conspiracy that they certainly wanted to keep quiet. And it took a day for some, for some young man in Jerusalem to have heard about it. You can't keep conspiracies quiet, Okay? You can't keep them quiet. And so those who suggest that the disciples and all these people who were claiming that Jesus was, was alive after he was dead, it's just absurd, the idea that that kind of a conspiracy could be kept. You can see how well this one happened. It didn't make it a day. It didn't make it a day. So um, let's look at the next couple verses. The, the commanders told this man, young man not to tell anybody about it. And then he says this, and he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So the commander gets 470 soldiers, 470 soldiers. And at about nine o'clock at night, he sends them and Paul to Caesarea. So he's taking this, obviously, very, very seriously. He's not messing around. Paul had caused such a ruckus here. And remember this, by the way. Paul hadn't really done anything in Jerusalem to cause a ruckus. It's not like he had been preaching the synagogues and causing all kinds. All he had done is gone into the temple. This was actually, some of the other towns you can see how it built up. But here, he hadn't really done anything. But he had caused such a ruckus, but not in Jerusalem, all over the world right? That's why they're so upset, because all over the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached with such power that now these people are so angry that they want to kill Paul that this Roman uh, commander gets 10 to 1, 
soldiers to the Jews who admit to the untrained Jews who had made this pact, he gets 470 soldiers to go against 40-something of them and then takes them at night so they won't know about it the other way. The other way. They're ready for trouble. And he takes them to Caesarea. So let's read about that. It says, he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias. Now, Claudius Lysias, that's this guy, the Roman commander. This is the first time we actually see his name. I told you last time, or we, we read last time about how he had bought his citizenship in Rome, probably bought it while Claudius was Caesar, while Claudius was the ruler, the emperor, and so therefore would have taken his name Claudius, which is the normal thing that people would have done at that time. So Claudius Lysias is the name of this uh, Roman commander. And he says, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. You may remember the story last time. He didn't learn that he was a Roman and go rescue him, right? He grabbed him, arrested him, was about to flog him. He leaves that out before he even found out that he was Roman. But anyway, he makes it look nice for him. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. And this is interesting because the way that Luke writes this here, he's saying that this is the actual text of the letter. Acts is about facts, right? This is the actual letter that Claudius Lysias sent, or at least the text of the actual letter that Claudius Lysias sent to Felix. So he was able to get a hold of it somehow. Why, why include it? They're just telling the same story again. I think Luke's in, Luke includes it once again to show that this is a real history, right? A real history that you can depend on. Anyway, this is the real letter. It says, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So they take him to Felix. He's the governor. He's in Caesarea. Jerusalem is actually not the center of government for the Romans. In Judea, Caesarea is. That's why Paul is brought there. Felix... Paul comes in, Felix asks him where he's from, and he's asking that so he can check that Paul's actually within his jurisdiction. He doesn't want to mess around with him if he's not. Paul's from Cilicia, Felix realizes he's in his jurisdiction, and he puts him aside to be dealt with later. To be dealt with later. So that's the end of, of this chapter, uh, and we're gonna, we're, that's as far as we're going to go today in the Scripture, but I want to I unpack some of this. Okay, I want to unpack some of this. A couple things that I want to walk through. First, the Lord promises Paul that he'll go to Rome. But the first thing to remember is he doesn't tell Paul how long it will be. It'll be a couple of years, by the way. Not till we get there, though. We'll, we'll do it in a few weeks. But it'll be a couple of years before he gets there. And he'll still be under arrest when he gets there. But he didn't tell Paul that stuff. He left that stuff out. He just told Paul that this thing was going to happen. But he didn't tell him everything about it. When the Lord gives us promises, it's going to be his way, not our way, Right? The Lord didn't say that our lives were all going to be lollipops and bubblegum. Nevertheless, we know we can depend on his promises. We know we can depend on his promises. Um, and as we'll see, Lord willing, as we get through the rest of this book, the Lord does get Paul there through a number of different issues that it takes for him to get there. Um, so when Paul hears, though, that there's a group of more than 40 men who want to kill him, 
Why warn the commander of the garrison at all if he knows that he's going to make it to Rome? He knows he's not going to die there. He knows. Jesus, you know, the Lord has been there, stood by him and told him, you're going to make it to Rome. So he knows that whatever these guys want to do, he's not going to die. So why even worry about it? Why even take the time to warn the commander or anything else? Because he doesn't have to worry about it. He's, he's walking around knowing that God is going to get him to Rome, that that's going to happen. So why does he do that? There are a couple possible reasons why. Let me, let me walk through them. First, Paul loved people, okay, including the Romans and the Jewish leaders and all these 40-something men. He loved all of them, okay? Even though some of them had made themselves Paul's enemies, Paul was a Christ follower, and so he loved his enemies because that's what Jesus has told us to do, right, to love our enemies. I know that's one of the harder parts of Scripture. That's one that people really, really struggle against. Love your enemies. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to do, but it is a command and one that Paul certainly would have been following. Paul doesn't want these guys to try to kill him, not because he thinks they can kill him, because he knows he's going to Rome, okay? But he doesn't want them to kill him because they themselves might get killed if they try that, right? Or, or they might kill some of the Roman soldiers. It might lead back to the council and the Sanhedrin, and it might undo all of Jerusalem, which he doesn't want to happen because he loves these people. He loves these people, right? He doesn't want the Jewish leaders to get caught up in this and possibly be executed. What does Paul always want for everybody that we've seen consistently? He wants them to know Jesus. He wants them to be saved. That's what he wants. He's not holding a grudge. He's not angry. He wants this thing to stop because he doesn't want bad things to happen to these people who he actually cares about and loves. But here's here's the other thing. When God tells you something, you know what's going to happen, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to use wisdom and plan well as you're walking through those things that God has for you. So just because Paul knows that the Lord is going to make sure that he makes it to Rome doesn't mean that Paul shouldn't do all the things on Paul's side to wisely get there, like foiling a conspiracy of people to murder him, right? We know, for instance, that God grows the church, right? That over time, that it's the Lord who will bring people into this body to come to know him and to grow in him. We know that that's his work, so does that mean that myself and, and the other, and, and all of you and all of us as we're, as we're working through this, that we just sit around and wait for the church to grow? No. We don't do that, right? We invite people. We advertise. We do whatever. Not, not because we think that it's our power that makes the thing happen. We believe that it's the promise of God that he will continue to grow his church and make it strong. But we have a duty our own thing that we're supposed to do, not because it's in our power that it happens, but because we've got to be faithful to wisely do our part. Just because we trust in God doesn't mean we check our brains at the door. God has given us and will give us the things we need to do our part in His plan. And as always, if you have any questions about today's episode, call us at 360 360- 885-9000 or send us an email info at axchurchnw.org Thanks for listening and I hope you'll check out our next episode to see how all this turns out. That's right here on Contemplate.